Hi, I'm Anna Soper, and I'm a visual artist and librarian in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. On this episode of Teen People, I speak with Sarah Dytum, author of a new book about toxic tabloid culture of the late 90s and early 2000s, and how it shaped the way we see ourselves, our bodies, and our lives. This is Teen People, a podcast inspired by Teen People magazine. Teen People was a spin-off of People, the American celebrity magazine, and was published between 1998 and 2006. In the year 2000, Teen People's then-publisher Ann Zarin said presciently, We make celebrities real, and real teens celebrities. To that end, Teen People scouted real teens to model clothes and makeup. They mentored high school journalists, and cultivated a core of thousands of readers they called trendspotters, who responded to Teen People's calls for submissions, which were often, to be frank, thinly-veiled marketing exercises. Unlike many of the other teen magazines, Teen People printed their young content creators' full names, ages, and locations, which makes this podcast possible since I use my library science skills to track them down online. Where are they now? Join me as we stroll down memory lane and revisit my guests' formative years. So this episode is a departure from my usual format, in that my guest was not in Teen People magazine. However, she has read Teen People magazine, and her new book is focused on many of the celebrities Teen People covered. Sarah Dytum is a feature writer and literary reviewer for the Sunday Times, and a regular contributor to Graydon Carter's airmail newsletter. Her work has appeared in both The Guardian and The Mail on Sunday. What range? In the UK, her book is called Toxic, Women, Fame, and the Naughties, and is published by Fleet. In North America, the book is Toxic, Women, Fame, and the Tabloid 2000s, and is published by Abrams Press. It's a scathing re-examination of the lives of nine female celebrities, Britney Spears, Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, Aaliyah, Janet Jackson, Amy Winehouse, Kim Kardashian, China, the wrestler, and Jennifer Aniston all of whom have experienced some form of global fame and the consequences that come with too much attention. In Toxic, Sarah writes, Tearing these women to pieces was both a social activity and a form of divination. In the entrails of their reputations, we hunted for clues about what a woman ought to be. She dissects the after-effects of Janet Jackson's Timberlake-induced wardrobe malfunction. After the incident, 20 years ago in 2004, Justin enjoyed another decade or so of positive press, whereas Janet's career was never quite the same again. Sarah also writes about Aaliyah, who met her future husband, the now-disgraced R&B singer-songwriter R. Kelly, when she was 12 and he was 24. When she was 15, the two were briefly married. A subsequent agreement made between Aaliyah and her parents and R. Kelly protected her reputation and enabled the growth of her short career, but it also protected R. Kelly for a time. 
Aaliyah was killed in a small plane crash in August 2001 at the age of 22. There are other uncomfortable details in Sarah's book, such as the anecdote about Amy Winehouse's closeness with the paparazzi staked outside her London flat. She would very cheerfully bring them cups of tea. They would later photograph her being removed from the flat in a body bag. This is a blunt, forceful book, and so we talk in this episode about addictions and mental health, a warning. But it's also a fascinating recap of the decline of traditional media, traditional ways of being famous, and the early years of social media and being a woman online. Sarah and I spent part of our call leafing through my Teen People collection. I pulled out excerpts from Teen People's contemporary reporting on the stars Sarah writes about in Toxic. Unfortunately, I had to cut most of this content from this episode as my time was running pretty long, but I have posted these outtakes in a second episode. You can find part two of my conversation with Sarah on your favorite podcast app. I've included two of these Teen People excerpts in this episode as they opened up some larger conversations on the topics Sarah explores in her book. You'll hear some of Teen People's reporting on Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake, a fractured relationship that still makes headlines to this day. So join me and Sarah as we discuss Toxic. When I reached out to you, I was so impressed that you responded to me so quickly and you actually had a memory of Teen People magazine. Can you tell me about that? Um, It's a fairly hazy memory, um, but I think unlike most people who grew up in the UK, um, I did have a small amount of direct experience of it because for a few years, my dad was working in the United States um, and again, like looking back now, it was an incredibly fortunate position as a British person to be able to experience America because he wasn't just working in, I think most people in the UK, like our experience of America is really about, you know, like what we see on TV. So it's really Hollywood, whatever parts of America you think, you know, you know, the Hollywood version of it. Because of the work my dad was doing, he worked in um, the Caribbean, he worked in Virginia, and he worked in Florida. And so we, when we were staying with my dad while he was doing those jobs, we were not working in like the big metropolises. We were working like he was in small towns, and we were actually, you know, hanging out with fairly normy Americans from those places. Um, which at, at the time I was just like, oh, you know, this is this is just my life. <laughs> and now I'm like, I am so fortunate that I got to have those experiences, and that was such, you know, such incredibly you know great and beautiful places to see but also America has such a kind of a dominant influence on British culture but we don't know very much about actual America and I kind of feel like even just that small glimpse was really helpful to me and so obviously I was a teenager like knocking around on these long summer holidays what on earth was I going to do apart from buy a ton of magazines (laughs) like in supermarkets and hoover them up you know, a, a whole bunch of magazines launched their kind of teen counterpart, I think, around this time, didn't they? So there was yes. teen, teen Vogue as well. Um, 
and Cosmo Girl. Oh yeah, Cosmo Girl. L Girl. Well. Um, yeah, all of these things. And I think it's a really um, interesting moment in magazine publishing. So like my professional background is in magazines. It's this weird moment where magazines have always, especially fashion magazines, have always relied a lot on reading up and teen magazines have always relied a lot on reading up. So the market for magazines is always, um, or certainly for magazines aged at the teenage market, is always a little bit younger than the people they seem to be about or seem to be aimed at. Like there was a very successful magazine in the UK called Just 17 that um, that I used to read here and uh, if I remember rightly the kind of core demographic for Just 17 was 12 to 14 year olds or maybe even a bit younger um, and so it's this interesting thing with these like teen kind of I guess you could call them diffusion lines <laughs> if you want to think about them like that of publishers purposefully going after that reading up market and saying actually we recognize that there's a teenage audience for all these titles and we're going to do something that is specifically for and about them so it's kind of it seemed to me to be publishers kind of trying to get out in front of the reading up tendency and cultivate an audience that was was already there. And I think in the end, that was kind of the doom of some of these magazines as well, because I, th- I think Teen Vogue is the only title still standing. Is that right? Um, I think so, but I don't think they publish a print version. I think they're just yeah, online, it's online at this only point. Now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because... Because eventually you can't outpace the reading up. The reading up is always going to come for you and destroy you. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, it was like an interesting moment. And I think had a lot to do with what a competitive time it was for magazines as well. And the fact that the internet had started to kind of, you know, nibble into the audience for Mm. these magazines. And they were looking for ways to, you know, expand or cultivate or kind of, you know, turn younger people into magazine readers rather than lose them to the internet forever which you know I guess as we talk we'll you know kind of discuss how that turned out (laughs) yeah absolutely and I think magazine culture is something that you reference quite a bit in the book you do reference for example the really foundational importance of the Brangelina photo shoot for W magazine Mm. which really cemented their relationship uh, as a couple in the public eye Um, and you talk about that shift as well from print to digital and how digital digital first commentators like Perez Hilton really set uh, um, set in motion the, the media landscape that exists today. Yeah, and the two things, the blogs and the magazines are moving hand in hand through this period as well. So they're in competition, but the blogs are producing material that the magazines are responding to, and the blogs are also completely like cannibalistic off of the blogs as well. So as much as the blogs kind of set themselves up as a different world, um, you know, I remember um, like one of my favorite bits of Jezebel used to be the cover lies feature where they would go into the cover of a woman's magazine and like pull apart all of the different cover lines and just explain what kind of, you know, pernicious nonsense. <laughs> these cover lines were this month and it was really really fun and it was obviously like taking chunks out of the print market but you know it's only meaningful if there's a magazine market that you can actually write about and talk about so magazines provided loads of what these blogs were actually talking about at the same time the blogs were changing the kind of language and the relationship to the celebrities that the magazines were then engaging with 
Hmm. Um, when did you uh, decide to to write a book about this time through the lens of these famous women? Mm. I kind of um, I always give two answers to that. So the kind of the real answer is that in 2021, I was asked to write an article about Free Britney. And, you know, like it's a great subject to write about anyway. But I just found it so interesting and felt like there was so much to say about her celebrity persona and her relationship with her fans and how that had been constrained by and changed by the way celebrity had changed over the kind of course of her stardom. I was just like, ah, I've got, I've got so much more than one article about this. And that was the sort of genesis of the proposal that became toxic. And the other version is that I've been writing this book my whole entire life and I have a complete like squandered you know early adulthood where I was meant to be doing all sorts of other things and all I was doing was reading celebrity gossip so you know I was meant to be doing writing a, a doctoral thesis about George Eliot at one point and I I'm almost certain that I spent more library hours using the computer to read celebrity blogs than I ever did actually reading about George Eliot. So, so that's embarrassing, but it's all paid off now. <laughs> yes, it's resulted in a book. And as a librarian, I'm not going to judge what you what you do in a library when you're meant to be researching one thing and you end up researching another thing. Um, we, we stand the non-judgmental librarians. <laughs> thank you. In the acknowledgments, you describe producing the manuscript as a vile business. Why was that? <laughs> I think everybody who's written a book, well, all my friends who'd written books warned me that writing a book would be absolutely horrible. And I was like, la, 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 la. I'm going to be great at writing a book. Um, but it is really hard. Um, just because you're working on, certainly as a journalist and being used to working on a kind of journalistic scale of you know like the longest articles I'll write as a journalist will be I don't know like four to six thousand words and it's you know it's quite hard to get lost in four to six thousand words when you're dealing with a scale of you know eighty thousand words which is what toxic is there are so many rabbit holes that you can drag yourself down and things you can get lost in and I think the big difference between writing a journalistic article and writing a book that I found anyway may not be true for everyone is that when I'm writing an article I I know what it is before I start and I'm fairly clear about what the structure is going to be and what the themes and you know what the beginning middle and end is all going to be but even given that there was loads of stuff that I was just like learning and finding out as I went along you know, I'd discover one thing about the legalities of sex tapes and be like, oh, I've got to go and change another thing in another chapter now. <laughs> and so so that's that's the struggle of it. And also it's like um, it's quite a solitary occupation and you're kind of on your own with this material. You know, obviously, like I worked really closely with the brilliant editors at Fleet in the UK and Abrams in the US. So it's not like I was, you know, monastically squirreled away with no one to look after me. But ultimately, it's, you know, it's you and your ideas. And there were certain times when I kind of put my head up with a draft and be like, can you tell me if this is, you know, sane, <laughs> reasonable, makes, <laughs> makes any sense at this point? <laughs> And I suppose the third part is that some of the material is just genuinely really upsetting. I don't want to like over egg my, my trauma in terms of the writing on it, not least because, you know, the traumas actually belong to the people they happen to. And also because, I mean, 
a lot of the process of working on it was incredibly fun and meant you know like spent two weeks re-watching friends or you know like a couple of weeks doing a deep dive into Ali's back catalogue and that was you know like like if I could be paid to do those things for the rest of my life that would be incredible but some of it was just you know devastatingly unpleasant and there was certainly and there's one thing in the introduction a piece of revenge porn that I wrote about in the introduction which was the last thing I found in the course of my research and it's a um, a picture of an underage Vanessa Hudgens that was published on some of the celebrity blogs and I remember coming across those blog posts and just thinking like I'm done I'm out like I've really had enough of this period there's too much unpleasantness to deal with so that that's probably the vileness were there moments in the book that you found hard to write uh and 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 which moments were were challenging for you Mm. the hardest chapters to write were probably the Amy Winehouse chapter was incredibly painful to write because it meant having a a real confrontation with how deeply damaged she was by her addictions and I think um maybe like a lot of people I think I'd gone into writing about Amy Winehouse thinking that the tragedy was that no one had been able to help her before she died and I came out of it thinking actually she was past the point of of intervention probably before she wrote Back to Black and I came out of it thinking actually the miracle is that Back to Black got made at all and she was struggling so incredibly with her addictions and her eating disorder that you know the damage had already really been done and I found that awful really because once you acknowledge that you're acknowledging that the period of her greatest fame and the period when people were most obsessed with her is basically a period of her you know dying over the course of several years which I think is often true for people who have addictions it's often if you talk to people who are close to people who have addictions one of the things they'll describe is that you're basically watching someone commit a slow suicide but to have to kind of acknowledge that as a consumer of celebrity culture, I had been complicit to some small degree in that was quite painful and upsetting. Um, the Alia one was sad in a slightly different way, just because when she dies, she's 21, it's 2001. She's just released the album Alia, which is pitched as her, you know, this is her kind of leaving behind all the R. Kelly stuff, not that anyone really talks about the R. Kelly stuff at that time, but it's implicit in the coverage that this is Alia. She's a woman, she's found her own creative voice. You know, she's got the lead role in Queen of the Damned coming up and she signed up for the two Matrix sequels as well. And it's like, this is someone who's going to be absolutely huge. And then she dies. So obviously none of that happens. And so that was kind of heartbreaking to deal with the lost potential there. Um, And absolutely um, gutting, really, to kind of go back and look at how badly, um, not press coverage alone, but also um, societal attitudes to sexual abuse of young women had really failed her. Um, And one of the really upsetting parts of um 
of the earlier story is how much her presentation and the way that her image was protected um, served inadvertently as protection for R. Kelly and led to parents of young black women who were looking for a career in entertainment, assuming that R. Kelly must be a kind of safe pair of hands. And that is, um, yeah, that's that's an upsetting thing as well. So those were probably my hardest bits to, to contend with. Mm-hmm. How the about Amy you? Wine- yeah, the Amy Winehouse chapter. Um, the I remember her appearances on Nevermind the Buzzcocks, which I I didn't watch on Canadian TV, but I did watch mm-hmm. on YouTube. You know, and um, uh, yes, I I remember that particular episode with Simon Amstel sort of essentially kind of staging an intervention, but she's yeah. clearly she's clearly wasted, and um, and it was uncomfortable. But I also remember the curious thing about her appearances on that show was that she was also funny, and She's it was so funny. It was so lovely to see her. Um, she was so captivating, so enjoyable. But as you say, yeah. uh, we watched we watched her death happen in slow motion. Yeah, and I also think um, kind of if you wanted to get you know really expansive about the theme i think fame itself is kind of an addiction i've just been um, rereading matthew perry's autobiography after you know his extremely sad death mm-hmm. and it's um i think probably one of the most interesting celebrity memoirs that i've ever read because it is absolutely relentlessly honest about how much he wanted to be famous and how much he thought that fame was going to solve some problem he had and that for him goes kind of hand in hand with the drinking and the drugs problems that he had as well. And I think I think people who want to be famous, not people who do something that makes them famous, I think that's a really important distinction. And we can maybe talk about where I think different people in the book sort of fall along that thing. But I think people who desire fame often desire it because there is something missing in their life or something that they think being famous will fix for them in the same way that an addict is looking for a solution in the substance that they're pursuing and you know and fame doesn't fix things right fame just means that you have the same problems but with many more people looking at you while you're going through them Hmm. um but yeah I think addiction and fame even if they don't go directly hand in hand I do think they have certain things in common yeah there's that Britney Spears song lucky if there's nothing wrong with my life why do these tears come at night right which is well you know um again in retrospect extremely heartbreaking that you know to kind of like the levels of tragic irony in her singing that song at the point when she was singing it are manifold Mm -hmm. um But yeah, I think, and in Amy Winehouse's case, there are kind of writings from when she's very young where she just says, I really want to be famous. And she's incredibly talented and the talent is going to make her famous. But the seeking of fame and the longing for that kind of massive mass acceptance and even, and then you add to this her like issues with addiction and eating disorders, which compound everything. But I think it puts you in a position where it's really hard to protect yourself once you're in a position as a public figure where you really need to be very, very good at protecting yourself. Whereas I look at Paris Hilton's career and I think she has pursued fame really purposefully, but she's pursued it for a reason. I think she's seen fame as 
a means of, you know, essentially making money, right? Paris the brand is Paris Hilton's business and being famous is necessary to Paris the brand. But I don't feel like she has, I think she's got a skill for being famous, but I don't think that she has the same desire that you might that you would find kind of when you dig into someone like Matthew Perry or Amy Winehouse. When I was reading the Britney chapter, I was wondering if you wished you could have read her memoir before this book was published, before your book was published. <laughs> um, I definitely had a, a long dark night of the soul when I found out that the Britney memoir was number one coming out and number two coming out two days before mine was being published in the UK. So Dear. I was a bit like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, so to bring up someone who, um, who has been declared toxic, in fact, it was a bit like the um, joke in Annie Hall where um, Woody Allen finds Marshall McLuhan and brings him to correct someone about his uh, re- about their reading of Marshall McLuhan's work. I was a bit like, I had these kind of visions of just the Britney book coming out and essentially being one long rebuke to my <laughs> reading as an outsider <laughs> on her life and career. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I think, um, you know, she's writing about her life and her experiences and what I am writing about or certainly what I I have aimed to write about in this book is the celebrity persona how were these women treated and presented and how did that relate to the way that women you know like you and I who were consuming this media how did that cause us to think about ourselves and other women and also in the end I was quite lucky because actually the Britney version of Britney aligns quite well with my kind of assumptions and best guesses. Let's get to uh, Britney and teen people. That dovetails pretty well with, I have this one. This is from March of 2002. Mm-hmm. And um, so this was uh, Britney at 20. So this was her 20th birthday interview with teen people how she feels about her man her movie and her future they ask her uh, at length about uh what does love feel like it's a beautiful thing is justin a good kisser britney says i would rather kiss than do anything and the journalist asks which brings me to the obvious question are you still a virgin and britney replies that's a personal question i can't go there sorry and the journalist says, that's okay, I had to ask. But did they have to ask? Ah. The whole thing about Britney's virginity is um, one of the most alienating things to go back and look at. Because the idea that you have this, you know, 16-year-old girl becomes famous, and not only is there media speculation about her virginity but it's also and I think this is the tricky thing when you're talking about to what extent were questions like that intrusive because they are obviously intrusive but Brittany had established um, a significant part of her image around this idea of virginity so there had been the wearing of the promise rings in particular um, another thing that I had managed to kind of substantially blank out from my memory actually was the whole promise ring thing in American evangelical culture and it kind of came up when I was reading about it and I was like oh no I remember that that was that was bad that was very bad um, 
but her virginity was placed front and center in the way that she was marketed and it was put front and center in a really eroticized way as well and i'm not saying that to victim blame britney because i don't think that anyone who's the age she was when she became famous is in a position to make judgment calls about that kind of thing and you know the onus is on the team around her her family and her record company to not put a young female celebrity into a position where her sex life is an object of feverish speculation in that way but because she hadn't been protected in that way and because her image had been founded on this idea of virginity and because her virginity was used, if you go back and read the books that she wrote with her mother around this period, which I've got somewhere on my desk, but I can't put my hand on at the moment, um, like Heart to Heart with Britney Spears, mm -hmm. um, they, they use the kind of idea of her as the virgin as a kind of guarantee that she is a good role model for American girls. So her virginity is also being used in that way as well to say, well, look, of course, like, you know, she looks sexy, but, you know, she's never had sex. So she's a completely acceptable person for your tween to enjoy and buy the merchandise of. And I think that's the problem. That's one of the that's the kind of tricky thing that I really wanted to kind of understand in this book because if you look back at questions like that I think my intrinsic reaction is like good god what is wrong with this journalist to be asking a 20 year old woman whether she's ever had sex that's insane um but at the same time it's a question that comes out of the way that Britney's been presented and marketed up to that mm. point mm -hmm. so it's not exonerating the journalist it's not you know it doesn't become an appropriate question the, the inappropriateness didn't start with that question, I think. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I was not ever a huge Britney fan. I, um, I was still obsessed with the Spice Girls at that point. And uh -huh. now, mind you, the Spice Girls were a few years older than Britney, but I don't recall them ever being asked about their virginity. No, no. And I think, again, that's a kind of, that's probably a British American culture thing, or certainly the culture that Britney was coming out of and the evangelical Southern church Christianity that kind of birthed the promise ring thing. Right. Yeah. Um, that's, that's probably quite a significant difference between Britney and the Spice Girls, but you know, like it's not, Britney was not the first um, pop culture figure. I remember being quizzed on her virginity. So um, in the 1990s, um, <laughs> Like, this is probably going to sound like quite weird given the subject of the book, but I, I am an indie girl at heart. Um, and I loved Juliana Hatfield, especially during the 1990s. Um, she was um, probably my favourite, my favourite singer. And I listened to her albums incessantly. And so Juliana Hatfield, um, she had at some point in one of her interviews made a throwaway comment about being a virgin in her 20s. Um, and her explanation is that she was just, she thought it would be kind of refreshing. There was so much emphasis on women, sex, rock and roll, promiscuity. She was just like, well, I'll just say that I'm still a virgin and that will be just kind of stop people banging on about this kind of thing. But of course it didn't because everyone was just like, for a virgin, <laughs> that's really, <laughs> that's exciting. And then like compounding that, she was in 
like a fairly famous um, on off relationship with Evan Dando out of the Lemonheads. And so there was a lot of speculation about whether some of his songs were actually about her and telling her that it was time to lose her virginity to him. For example, there's a song called It's About Time that she sings backing vocals on. Um, so I'd kind of seen all of this stuff happen around Juliana Hatfield in the first place. And, mm. you know, she absolutely hated it, obviously, because it's horrible and intrusive. But, um, you know, the concept of virginity historically is a public concept. This idea that the, you know, the virginity of a girl is a social um, asset that she has. It affects her marriageability. It affects her standing in the community and her reputation. Yes. So even though virginity is a private thing, it's also historically a public thing. Yes. And that, I think, it comes back intermittently. You kind of, you sort of scratch the surface of contemporary mores and you find the medieval period not very far underneath. Yes. And you were talking about, you know, Britney's, Britney's context as Southern evangelical. But virginity is, uh, um, is important in British history as well. It, it was important mm. that Princess Diana, that Lady Diana was a virgin when she married Prince Charles. Oh, yeah. And it's the reason, one of the reasons that Camilla was not considered acceptable as a wife to a king was yes. that she she was not a virgin or, you know, it was like obviously not a virgin at the point that she would have been married. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, yeah, I think the um, the promise ring thing is like specifically important to understanding how Brittany's virginity was presented. But yes. the fetishization of virginity is just like, you know, it's everywhere and mm. you don't have to dig particularly far to find people being weird about female virginity. One of the sort of interesting things about Brittany and probably something that I could have made more of in the book actually is uh, when she was being pitched around as a solo artist there was quite a lot of skepticism about it because at the time the Spice Girls were enormous and the perception was that solo female artists were over people wanted to listen to girl bands and so Brittany has to kind of overcome that perception before she is able to be launched as a solo star mm. um, but I also think it's kind of um that's thematically interesting, I guess, because when you look at the noughties, you're looking at a period that is just relentlessly anti-sisterhood, that just in every imaginable way looks for ways to pitch women against women, is fascinated by every bit of trash talk that you can find from, you know, like there are lots of snipey things that I've quoted in the book that various women in the book have said about other women in the book. Um and the media just fed off of those and loved them. But mm. I also think it was teaching the women like us who were consuming this media a lesson, which is that you don't survive by identifying with other women and like making common cause with women. You survive by being not like the other girls and establishing yourself as the special one who stands out and can kind of break the rules to some extent. It's a period really where feminism is sort of shoved off to the side and women are encouraged to think of themselves as exceptions. Mm. And I see that in some of these old teen peoples, the way they wrote about Brittany in relation to Jessica Simpson, that they were competitors. Mm. Uh, one teen people journalist used the word smackdown to describe Jessica and, mm. and Brittany. And Brittany and Christina Aguilera were always um, pitched uh, against yeah, each other classic, as well. Yeah, 
yeah as rivals you know yeah that's yeah. a really interesting point i think that also maybe is at the heart of careers like avril lavigne's um because when mm. when she came up she was not like the other girls right exactly and yet you know she is in lots of ways avril's career is she uses many of the same songwriters lots of the same you know studios labels the surrounding um you know industrial infrastructure is not different the difference is in the presentation and in the version of girlhood that's being pitched and sold um and yeah absolutely she's like the you know the indie queen who um you know you could identify with avril levine and look down on the sort of you know blonde bimbo princesses i mean pink as well who you know like i think pink is absolutely fantastic but something like the stupid girls video is kind of you know it just is that right it is not like these girls mm -hmm. yes yes uh, yes my theory this is a digression but my theory is that taylor swift is basically avril lavigne this is a fascinating theory <laughs> <laughs> tell me more so i think that if you listen to taylor swift's um I guess like her earlier stuff when she was still a country artist, I hear yeah. a lot of that Avril pop punk kind of um, yeah. tone, but just with country sort of stylings in the background. Mm. That's my theory. Yeah, yeah, I see <laughs> that. And and you know, like you belong with me, is that right? It's you know, she wears short skirts, I wear sneakers. <laughs> yes, she's a hoe. I'm not. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't. You know, <laughs> I wouldn't dare to judge. Yes. <laughs> Oh, yes. I think that the thing that you said a few minutes ago about um, the the artist who identified herself as a virgin and thought that that would somehow get ahead of that conversation and, oh. did, and it didn't. You write in the book that uh, attention was the vampire you invited in once and could never expel. Uh, yeah, and I think that's um, probably a good description of the way that almost all of us are living to some extent now, I think. It's impossible to imagine from the outside how bad it can possibly be to be famous. And I think a lot of the resentment and a lot of the hostility towards famous people and especially famous women that you see in this period has a sort of redistributive impulse it's kind of like well they've got all this stuff they've got this attention they've got this money they are inviting us to look at them and that's not fair and we want to take something back from them and we want to like redress their image so they can't be seen as so perfect and so wonderful and all of these things there is a real resentment of the fact of fame driving a lot of the more hostile coverage but I think you know anyone who has been on social media and received a bit of a chippy reply or comment at any point will have you know had that unpleasant experience of um you know a kind of a micro version of fame a micro version of the scrutiny that you didn't actually want to have um, and I think especially because of the way that we treat men and women differently in terms of public and private lives, I think there is a historic acceptance that men can be public people, that they are entitled to a place in the public sphere, and that they have a role in politics, culture, the media. Um, but women have had to scrap their way into that, and women are 
you know, still to a large extent identified with the domestic sphere and seen as belonging to that. So once a woman steps out of the domestic sphere and into the public, there's a kind of like assumption that follows that, that she has made herself available, that she Mm. has made herself public. And, um, you know, like public woman is an old euphemism for prostitute. That availability is considered to be sexual. Um, And that is a problem that women have, you know, women, you know, like all kinds of people have had to navigate that to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, But because of the collapse between public and private that happens in the period I'm writing about here because of the Internet, the women I'm writing about have to deal with an, a sort of incredibly extreme and hostile and aggressive version of intrusion and the collapse of norms around privacy. Mm-hmm. And you write about that in the book early on, you, you go back about a hundred years and you describe um, uh, when public toilets were established in Victorian mm. London, uh, men's facilities were easily and widely accepted, but there was entrenched hostility toward providing the same for women. The reasoning roughly was that a decent woman should never be far from her house. So why would she need a public toilet? Right. Exactly. And this is very, you know, this is the modern world. This is, you know, we are not talking about medieval people. We are Mm. talking about Victorians who in lots of ways share many of the same kind of precepts and understandings of the world that we have. And the idea that a woman would be away from her home long enough to need a wee was like made men so angry that like not like that bus drivers drove into the toilets to destroy them which is like what what is wrong with you (laughs) right (laughs) really extreme violent reaction to Mm. the you know to things that made it possible for women to exist in public Mm -hmm. and that you argue is the sort of the genesis of of um of the upskirt decade, as you describe it, you say women belonged to the private realm and when they left it, they became public women, implicitly accessible to anyone or any man, a logic that reached across centuries and continents and eventually modems to create the inescapable snare of the upskirt decade. Um, So all these famous women you write about had sought recognition, therefore they had forfeited all boundaries. Um, And I, I loved that you, you write about, you know, there's this conceptual notion of the long 19th century, um, which is like what the late 18th century to world war one. Um, And then I love how you write about the long aughts, which in your book you describe (laughs) as sort of like mid to late nineties up until around 2013. Yeah, it is a decade and a half, strictly speaking. But <laughs> um, but yeah, so I kind of I I pegged the beginning of it to when Baby One More Time comes out, mm-hmm. um, because because Britney basically because Britney is the kind of like the uh example of celebrity for this period. And if you want to understand what fame means in this period, then you look at Britney. But also because I think it's a real turning point. So Brittany is trained up for a version of celebrity that becomes redundant almost as soon as she gets famous. So she learns how to be a star in a system where record sales are how you measure success, mm-hmm. where TV, radio and magazines are how, are how you reach the public and where access 
is really important. So the star is able to control access to them and control their coverage to some extent, not to like a complete extent. It's not as if there has never been hostile or invasive coverage of people prior to this period. But certainly stars had a, a level of control because of the way that the media was organized. Then Britney gets famous. The internet is arriving concurrently. The year after Baby One More Time is released, Napster is launched, and mm. it just devastates the music industry. So every year, Britney continues to be one of the most successful recording artists in the world. And yet every year, she is selling less and less and less because the music industry as a whole, is like it loses half its value across 10 years, mm. which is... You know, like a horrifying, right? A horrifying economic reality to be yeah. in, which means that kind of income has to come from relentless touring, which she does. She tours a ridiculous amount, and it's um, sort of unimaginable how anyone survives doing that because the work involved is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and also from reality TV, like many, many celebrities sign contracts to make reality tv through this period because it's a way that they can leverage their you know their value as a celebrity through one of the mediums that's available while their record sales are losing value persistently Mm. um and so these new things and then obviously also the blogs as well and the fact of digital cameras which mean that your control as a celebrity over your image is kind of vaporizing week on week through this period So I think in the book I call Britney the last star of a dying age, right? She's designed to be sort of, you know, Shirley Temple redux and she ends up being the kind of first lady of internet celebrity, which she could never, ever have been prepared for in any sense. Hmm. And then I end it in 2013 um, because... I mean, it's a bit arbitrary, but not completely arbitrary, because 2013 is when um, Blurred Lines comes out and there's the feminist backlash to that, which I remember, um, (laughs) unfortunately, my research substantiated (laughs) in many ways was one of the first kind of organised feminist reactions to the sort of hostility and misogyny that was really pervasive through this period. Mm. But it's also a couple of other things happen. One of them is Gorka publishes the a link to the Hulk Hogan sex tape, which eventually leads to the um the legal action funded by Peter secretly funded by Peter Thiel of PayPal, who has this long-term grudge against Gorka, which leads in 2016 to a settlement against Gorka that is so massive it destroys Gorka. But I think mm. as well as destroying Gorka, it's basically that is the end of mainstream media mucking around with celebrity sex tapes or revenge porn. Like that is the point at which magazines and blogs and newspapers are like, we're not going to touch this stuff. It's yeah. There is there are legal repercussions for us, and it is you know it, it is potentially not just not just expensive but ruinous. It killed mm. Gorka. Mm. Um, and the other thing um, that actually I didn't realise until after I finished the book. So this is, so this should have been in the book, but isn't. But 2013 was the year of um, the um, the libel trial of the wife of the Speaker of the British House of Commons who had um, wrote a tweet that implied that a man called Lord McAlpine was a paedophile 
And so he sued her for libel for that. And at the time, a lot of the commentary was, how can you possibly be sued for libel for a tweet? But it turns out you can, and it was very expensive for her. <laughs> so in some ways, I think between those various things, other stuff that's happening around that period, 2013 is kind of the year the um, laws and norms kind of arrived for the internet. And it stopped being a place where anything goes and this kind of anarchic, um libertarian space and becomes a place where oh you can get sued for doing these things and mm. you do have to actually listen to what lawyers have to say you can't just do anything on here mm. I think we're just about to hit that with artificial intelligence technology because uh, oh. yesterday the, the the one of the board members of OpenAI was sort of very publicly fired, um, and another board member resigned or somebody resigned from OpenAI. Yeah. And I saw all these tech bros on Twitter last night posting screenshots of ChatGPT not allowing them to uh, or not responding to questions about about all of this. Um, and they were like, <laughs> "We're being censored. Why?" can't we find information as if there's no other place to find information but chat gpt but actually i think with that kind of reaction there's a lack of understanding that there are real world uh, repercussions and uh, these companies are protecting themselves mm, yeah and i think one of the things i wanted to like look at in the book is the sort of transit from early internet idealism and this sort of vision of a kind of happy libertarianism in which all kinds of things can happen and eventually the good stuff will rise to the top to how the internet works in practice which is that it is a set of systems that are made by people that have biases either inadvertently or very much advertently imposed by those people um, and which has its own power structures it was never a place beyond capitalism and class. Those things always existed there. And it was an era of um, not just idealism, but ignorance in pretending that those things could not apply there. Mm. I wanted to circle back to Brittany with a, a an excerpt that is actually from Justin Timberlake from an interview that he gave in the December 2002 issue of Teen People. So this is just a few months after Britney's just been mm. on the cover in the March 2002 issue, talking about her relationship with Justin, which did not have much more time to go. So here's how Teen People rehabilitated Justin after his breakup with Britney. Uh, they wrote, there's something about Justin Randall Timberlake that makes you forget he's one of the biggest celebrities on the planet. Maybe it's that Justin, 21, still has the characteristics of a sweet Memphis boy from the way he takes his iced tea with sweetened water, not sugar cubes, to the way he lets a woman enter the room first, to his sometimes roommate, his mum, or maybe it's how he and his best friend amuse themselves in their backyard, shooting potatoes into the air with a homemade shotgun. <laughs> it's a total country boy thing, Justin explains. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> oh, this is incredible. I love this podcast. This is such a great idea. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I think Homes um, Among Us. Homes Among Us is not a shot of potato with a homemade shotgun. That's certainly <laughs> <laughs> it's 
that's all I'm ever doing. Um, <laughs> again, another thing that I think I had sort of, I'd forgotten or I'd smoothed out in my retrospective narrative is that actually around the time of the Britney Justin breakup, Britney's career is a bit bumpy. She's kind of seen as having run out of gas to a certain extent. And Justin is the up and coming thing. He's got, you know, um, and like he's really, he's exciting musically. He's exciting as a celebrity. And it's kind of, I think this bit, this is a really interesting description of him because it's still kind of putting him in the context of that like nice, safe, down homey boy band member like your sort of fantasy boy like fantasy not even boyfriend fantasy boy you might hold hands with right <laughs> he's a lovely nice boy he's close to his mum but would never try anything awful um <laughs> but you know breaking up with Brittany was um and especially some of the things he said about Brittany in the aftermath of their breakup was so significant for Justin in terms of establishing him as, um, I think, in the words of Details magazine, not that sissy boy band member, mm. but, you know, a real serious artist. So I think, like, the breakup was, at the time, all upside for Justin, really, especially yeah. the way that he played it through the Crimea River video and the, um, you know, what's seen now to be pretty unpleasant things that he said about Britney in the media. Yes. Um, I felt um, it was weird. I came out of this book feeling more sympathy towards Justin than I had perhaps expected. I think. One of the things I hadn't fully appreciated was how much he, as much as Britney, was a kind of victim of the pop machine. And especially because of the early experiences he had with NSYNC of being managed by Lou Pearlman, an incredibly predatory, financially, allegedly predatory sexually pop manager who's now dead. Mm -hmm. um, and if you watch the documentary about him on YouTube, um, some of the testimony of some of the alleged victims is really harrowing. Justin's never said anything um, about sexual impropriety in that situation, but he did describe the sort of financial sharp practice. And pop music is, you know, a pretty predatory industry. I don't, I think it's worse for women in all the ways that things are worse for women, but that doesn't mean it's pleasant to be a man in the pop industry. And certainly Justin experienced a lot of bad stuff through that time. Um, and I guess the other thing is, you know, who among us has not trash-talked next when we were 21? I mean, it's not, <laughs> like, it's not a period for most people to be on their most excellent behaviour, I think. You're still developing as a person. And if you're asked by a DJ to say something scabrous about your ex, then you're probably going, you're quite likely to supply at that age. Um, and I also kind of found, as I was reading his interviews and comments that he'd made over the years, he actually had apologised kind of um, before we get to the great Justin reckoning that begins around, I think, 2018. I th sort of 
you start to get people saying, wait, wasn't Justin Timberlake a bit of an asshole to <laughs> Janet and Brittany? Um, you know, he's given interviews where not only does he say, um, especially with regards to Janet, actually, not only does he say, I feel bad about what happens, but he, said, but he actually acknowledges the um, gender and race dimensions of it. And he says, I think I got treated better because I'm a white guy. And so I do feel a bit bad for him that we're now in this environment when people say, oh, Justin Timberlake, exemplar of white privilege. And you're a bit like, well, you know, actually a lot of men in this book who are a lot less photogenic did much, much worse things to people. And Justin Timberlake, I think, kind of falls into that villain role in the narratives that we are working with now without it necessarily being a kind of, without it being completely just. But, mm. you know, but the treatment was sexist and the way that he was embraced after the breakup and Britney was punished was absolutely sexist. And, you know, he made the most out of that in terms of his own profile and celebrity at the time. You know, it's also interesting, you mentioned Diana Krall in the book. Um, I do. And, yeah, yeah. And I love that Canadian representation. Yeah. You mentioned how she she released an album around September 11th, 2001. Oh. I, think, I think the week after September 11th. Yeah. Um, and you referenced, um, did you reference a review of the album? Yes, it was a commentator and um, a column in, I think it was the Wall Street Journal. In fact, I know it was the Wall Street Journal because I had okay. to take out a subscription to read it. Oh. And then I forgot to cancel it for ages and ages. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's how they get you. Months, yeah. <laughs> six months later, I was like, what am I still paying for having read that? <laughs> um, but yeah, so a, um, a critic called Terry Teachout. I believe, who wrote this column in the aftermath of 9-11, which was basically making what was quite a popular argument at the time, which was that the reaction to 9-11 would surely be that the American public would re-embrace beauty and a sense of good and bad, both moral and aesthetic. And he uses... And Dina Kroll's album as an example of this because she's a jazz singer who's, who does quite a kind of classic traditional um, set of standards on this album um, and so that's Terry Teachout's prediction for how popular culture is going to evolve in the aftermath of 9-11 and um, around the same time The Onion publishes a blog post called with the headline um, I think America longs to go back to caring about stupid bullshit um, which is um, I think if I see if I can quote this from memory there's something like um, Americans wonder when they will stop having to worry about the you know think the best of their fellow man and focus on the good of their neighborhood and go back to thinking about Jennifer Lopez's dress and <laughs> I can't even remember and Britney Spears and something 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 um, and actually out of those two you know visions of how America was going to react it was the onion that was right. America did not want to go into, you know, take resort in beauty and goodness. Um, I think there was a real nihilistic drive, actually, especially because, um, and there was a hard thing to write about, a hard thing to get back to. And it's a thing that I went back and forth on a lot while I was writing the book. And a, and a few of the reviews have actually said, but why is the Lindsay Lohan chapter about 9-11? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I can't explain. It just felt right. <laughs> and you have um, to write about 9-11 in a book about I the have to write about 9-11. And yeah. it actually, and the reason it felt right in the Lindsay chapter was because I think she's an example of someone who the gossip focus on her was so nihilistic. People were willing her to die in a way that they would do later with Amy Winehouse. Mm. But in terms of Lindsay, it's um, it's also bound up with this idea of her as being the next Marilyn as well. And it's something that she sort of plays with as well because she does several photo shoots that imitate Marilyn. There's yes. this desire to see her crash and burn. Mm-hmm. And I think to understand that desire, you have to think about the fact that gossip culture comes so strongly out of Manhattan, especially out of Gorka and the voice of Gorka in this Mm. time. Mm. And it's written by people who would have been immediately exposed to the like aftermath of 9-11. It's not possible to have been in Manhattan in that time and certainly not to work in the media and not, like, number one, see the actual physical devastation, and number two, know people who were killed, who worked, you know, like, people who worked in your industry were Mm -hmm. among the victims. It's this millennialism. It's this, well, we're at the end of the world. Nothing matters. Everything is burning. And that becomes us the sort of dominant strand strand of this gossip culture. And people Mm. do write about it. Someone like, and people like Piers Morgan, who is really a newspaper editor, really influential in shaping gossip culture in the UK. um, He gave a series of interviews where he said, well, after 9-11, we knew we couldn't let celebrities have it their own way anymore. And you're like, that's your reaction to 9-11? Is that you're going to be more horrible to celebrities? Mm. But it was there. It was part of the culture and it influenced the way celebrities were treated. Mm. as strange as it seems mm. and and donald trump uh emerges in the book as a, as a mm. key figure in the chapter on china yeah well the last three chapters really are a kind of donald trump triptych so he's a bit in the kim kardashian chapter yes um yes. very strongly in the china chapter because she's a wwe wrestler and my theory of donald trump is that obviously The Apprentice was hugely important in terms of making him famous and making him a household name. But if you watch The Apprentice, what you're seeing is Trump, the like, you know, the business version of Donald Trump. If you want to see Donald Trump, the president, you need to watch his appearances in WWE wrestling, because that's where you see the president he's going to be. It's where you see him working a live crowd. Mm -hmm. It's where you see his ability to be in the language of wrestling, the heel. So the heel is this figure in wrestling who's like the bad guy that you enjoy and you cheer for. Mm. And that's what Donald Trump is. He like, he knows how to rile people up. And like the perfect example of this is kind of the difference between how he was treated after the release of the Grab Her By The Pussy video and how Hillary Clinton was treated after the hot mic basket of deplorables moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Both of which are, I think you can say, you know, both of which are unfortunate things to have been busted saying in the course of a presidential campaign. In Hillary Clinton's case, she is, you know, she's a real serious politician. So she says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, apologises. And it's held over her forever. She can never get away from having said that thing, that ill-advised thing. In Donald Trump's case, he, (laughs) classic Donald Trump style, he says, I'm sorry. He says, I don't care. He says, it's just locker room talk. He says at a later date that it was faked. (laughs) So he says, 
says what like just um in Steve Bannon's word, he really does flood the zone with shit around this thing because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Like the truth or otherwise of whether Donald Trump said this thing or if he is or isn't sorry for it is completely irrelevant to Donald Trump. He says sorry because then he can say, I've said sorry. So if you bring it up again, it's like you're the loser for bringing it up. Mm. But he also leans into it to a certain extent because there's an element of his face that absolutely love that he said this. And this kind of sexual license, sexual predatory behavior is part of what his fan base actually like about him. And that's classic wrestler stuff. It's classic kayfabe, right? It's playing the real against the fake. It's turning the real world into part of your persona and narrative and it is making your ability to be the bad guy into an asset which I think is a real thing that liberals like me have massively underappreciated about Donald Trump and why there's you know there's a real depressingly strong chance that he's going to be president again right because he's so good at being the bad guy and like it's it's almost irresistible it's um and i see that as as basically that's the craft of wrestling and if you go back and look at his appearances on wwe you'll see him honing and shaping that Mm -hmm. and i think it's smart to 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 write about him in the book because it foreshadows everything that comes at the end of your upskirt decade Mm. um it foreshadows what happens three years later uh after three years after the blurred lines video where he is Mm. um elected president um it foreshadows the loss of Roe v. Wade, um, uh, enshrining yeah. the, the the right to abortion um, and reproductive choice uh, in America. So, um, yeah, I think that's I I will say I finished the book earlier this week, and I sort of thought to myself, there could be a follow up here. Do you have a follow up in mind? I don't know. I think the thing that if there's a follow up to this book, I think. There's something in the Kim chapter about how the internet has changed our relationship to our bodies. And I think I find that really, really interesting. If there's a follow-up, it'll probably be digging into that and drawing out more of that idea. Because I think Toxic is really a book about what did the catastrophe of the internet do to the way we think about privacy, which I think is it's a kind of it's a a cataclysm that we sort of lived through and the end of that period is a kind of reaching a settlement with the internet to a certain extent you know it goes from being a kind of a weird novelty thing at the start of the period to being you know the place where you check your bank statements and pay your bills it has become (laughs) you know tamed and normal to an extent not that Mm -hmm. it's not still a place where lots of very terrible things happen but it is but there's a really there's a significant change in the way it's part of our lives but I'm interested in what it becoming normalized has actually done to us subsequently, mm. I think. And also getting back to the body, it's a place where we are providing our biometric data. Oh, really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Our fingerprints, that... our eyes. Yeah. It's a really strange relationship of trust, isn't it? Again, yeah. going back to what you were saying about tech bros and uh, their, you know, shock horror that ChatGPT was not a pure, innocent tool that they could use. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> yes. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on yes. in there that we don't think about. Yes, there are boundaries. There really are. Mm. <laughs> um, did you see the thing the other day 
uh, where GQ magazine named Kim Kardashian Man of the Year. I loved it. <laughs> it, was, it was incredible. But <laughs> just like 10 out of 10 Kim photo shoot. I think she had her hair slicked down and a big the bag of cheetahs. Yep, I was like, what does this even mean? I love it. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. She looks good in a suit as well. She does look in the seat, doesn't she? And I just, yeah. I know that in the past that you have written about uh, gender identity, Mm. feminism, trans women, uh, in in such a way that that I think it's safe to say has generated some controversy online. I'm curious to know how your perspective on these matters informed uh, any of the writing in the book, if at all. You certainly talk in the China chapter about the uh, the, the gender bending uh, that was an aspect of her career. Yeah, and also um, the incredibly unpleasant transphobia that was included in some of the China storylines. So the period I'm writing about, it's not just that it predates um, some of the awareness and acceptance, but it also predates some of the ideas that are really, that have become quite universally acknowledged. So the idea of a gender identity, quote, like, quote, unquote, um, isn't really widely accepted in this period. And I think if you kind of went back to talk to a past version of you and me from in this period and mentioned gender identity, we would have been a bit like, what is one of those? This isn't, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand this. Um, and then there are like a couple of, like there are people I write about in the book who have transitioned subsequently. And one of the rules I tried to keep to in the book was um, to refer to things and people by the name they had in the period that I was writing about, which does mean that there are a couple of times when I do what somebody might consider to be dead naming, and it's not done with any malice. It's just like, for example, um, Elliot Page as Ellen Page was used as a kind of comparison point to Lindsay Lohan at the time. Like the there are early interviews with Page where they're like look at this wonderful young woman who is the complete opposite of horrible messy car crash Lindsay Lohan and there's no way to to talk about that and how it relates to Lindsay's treatment if you don't talk about it as Paige being a young woman at that time so whenever I've done that I've kind of acknowledged that there have been subsequent changes to people's identity and tried to be respectful of it in that way um But yeah, I think in some ways it was kind of, um, it was interesting to look at a period when um, misogyny, you know, misogyny in this book is kind of straight up misogyny, actually. It's like there is a lot of, there is a quite frank attitude that these women are being hated for being women and for failing at femininity as women in certain ways. And I think one of the unintended consequences of the um like broader adoption of talking about gender identity rather than sex is that it can obscure some of those relations and it can obscure the fact that you know women are being victimized as women for being female and so yeah it was interesting i suppose to look at a um a hearty era of old-fashioned misogyny <laughs> was 
probably be the way that I would put it. Yeah, old-fashioned misogyny taking place in um, a very quickly changing media mm. and um, sort of social um, climate. Uh, yeah. I wonder if you do follow up on on this book, um, perhaps those conversations will emerge uh, more in the forefront. I think, as you say, yes, we didn't really have some of this language and this this vocabulary and, and these yeah, ways of thinking about of, identity yeah. uh, 20 years ago that, that we right. have now. There's loads of stuff that um that we didn't have the um has sort of like terms and concepts that have come into being mm-hmm. over the course of the period I write about. So you know, we didn't have the word revenge porn until sort of 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. We didn't really talk about grooming. That's a concept that moved out of sort of um like child protection literature into the mainstream during Mm. this period and now has this sort of horrifying afterlife being weaponized by QAnon types which is a very strange evolution and you know a bit of a shame given it's such a useful concept to have yeah um we didn't have slut shaming as a concept we had slut shaming as a thing but not Mm. as a concept that you Mm. could talk about Mm -hmm. there wasn't uh you know we didn't talk about body shaming either we you know all of these things have been, you know, to a large extent developed and popularized by grassroots feminism, largely online feminism, and I think been incredibly useful in terms of identifying and naming forms of harm that women experience. As we wrap up, I wanted to end on the question that I ask all of my guests, which is what advice would you give to your teenage self today? Oh, wow. <laughs> that's such a that's such a, an interesting question. It's a hard one, isn't it? Gosh. I think the advice that I would want to give myself as a young woman in this period is um to not make the mistake that the culture is kind of in every way encouraging me to make and to confuse being sexualized with being powerful. I think it's, um, I mean, this comes up, especially in the Paris chapter, especially in the discussion of Girls Gone Wild and the sort of rise of that form of gonzo porn and girl next door stuff. But I think it's not confined to this decade. I, th- I think, you know, like every generation of young women basically has to go, this exper- go through the experience of discovering that being hot is useful up to a certain, useful and enjoyable up to a certain point, and then, <laughs> but is not in fact power in and of itself. And I guess if there was a way that I could have instilled that lesson in myself, without having to learn it the hard way in some regards I that would be nice but then you know everyone has to learn that lesson the hard way I think yes so many lessons we learn the hard way (laughs) in our youth and even in our adulthood too um, well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and um, to hear your your thoughts on teen people and on this wonderful book. So I really appreciate all the time that you've spent with me today. Oh, honestly, pleasure has been all mine. Um, I have had a great time. Thank you for having me.
Since my interview with Sarah, Justin Timberlake has walked back those apologies she alluded to. But whatever, Justin, that's fine. That just gives Sarah more material to critique in her next project. Thanks again to Sarah for this wonderful interview, and to Stephanie at Canadian Manda Group in Toronto for providing me with an advance review copy of Toxic. Please buy Sarah's book online or at your local bookseller. Find more information in the notes for this episode. On the next episode of Teen People, I interview the American journalist Dave Carger about his new book, 50 Oscar Nights, featuring his original interviews with 50 Hollywood figures, including Elton John, Halle Berry, and Meryl Streep, about their iconic and unforgettable Oscar wins. Dave began his career at Entertainment Weekly, where he interviewed Britney Spears, and freelanced at Teen People, and in recent years he has worked on TV as a host on TCM, the much-loved classic film channel. Subscribe to my podcast so you'll receive a notification when I share Dave's episode. In the meantime, please share this episode with your friends or leave a rating or review. Connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at TeenPeoplePod and check out those outtakes in part two of my interview with Sarah. I'm Anna Soper. Thank you for listening to Teen People. See you next time. Teen People.